I hate to be legalistic, but if you've never seen or you don't love the movie Rudy, you're not a Christian. I just want to throw that out there, okay? That is about right. It's Hoosiers right here is the greatest movie ever. And then Rudy is like right, right underneath of that. And so I just love that movie. But that is a painful part of that movie. And is a that little clip is just a reminder uh, that when you're struggling with doubt, that's a difficult time. But what can add to that misery, what makes it even more difficult is that when the people you love and the people who are supposed to love you and support you and encourage you, instead of doing that thing and helping you achieve and chase your dreams, they come along and they pile doubt on top of your doubt and they actually discourage you. Uh, Can you really land that job? Can you really make your business work? Can you really fix your marriage? What if your kids Don't turn out as you had hoped. What if that investment doesn't pan out? What if that loan application is denied? What if they can't find a cure? All of those questions are under the heading and the difficult thing to navigate in life, which is simply doubt. And they are very real. And oftentimes it's debilitating. And navigating through life is challenging at times, often incredibly challenged. But when you add doubt around every turn, it almost paralyzes you. And you simply at times cannot move forward. But even scarier than doubting ourselves, and even more painful when doubts come from those who are supposed to encourage us to chase our dreams and and do all those things like we saw in the clip. Even more difficult and frightful that is when our doubts are connected to our faith. Is God really there? Does God even care? Is God aware of what's going on in my situation? This morning, we're going to continue our fast track series through the Bible with the fifth fifth message uh, called facing adversity in a section of scripture uh, that we're simply going to call uh, the doubts. And last week uh, I told you that we'd be wrapping up the Old Testament portion, but this week we're going to cover a section that's actually in the Old Testament. So I know that's confusing. So let me kind of explain that just a little bit. Last week we uh, stopped the, the historical narrative, the chronology of the Old Testament ended in Malachi. And so this morning we're going to look at a section of scripture called the doubts. Uh, that deals with passages like Job's and Lamentations uh, and Psalms and some of those other places uh, where they don't advance the historical narrative of the Old Testament story as it plays out, but rather they serve as interludes in that time. And so even though it doesn't advance the history of the Old Testament, they're incredibly profitable because they give us a glimpse into the heart of what's going on with people who we would look at in Scripture and call the heroes of the faith, people who are incredibly faithful, people whose story in Scripture encourages us, and we get a peek into their hearts in their weakest moments, and we see their struggle and how they work those struggles out in everyday real life despite dealing with doubt. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning for a narrative in the Gospels uh, where the battle for doubt and faith play out in a very public uh, way And so since this section of Scripture is not advancing a historical narrative through the Old Testament, we wrapped it up last week, uh, we're going to break from what we've been doing in the series. And, and every, every week we've given you kind of a little uh, three to four minute history lesson of the narrative that's going on over that section. But since this isn't advancing that uh, historical chronology, we're not going to give that history lesson, but it actually allows me a little time on the back end to give you some practical uh, instruction. So Mark chapter nine, we're going to look this morning, beginning uh, in verse 14, we'll read down through verse uh, 27. It says, when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around him and scribes disputing with him. And immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And the one of the crowd answered, said, teacher, I have brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. 
And he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed on him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming in the mouth. And so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And so Jesus said, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came to him and he became as one dead. So that may be said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Oh, would you, would you love not be, been there and seen that? Would you love to be a part of that crowd and see, see that doubt and that thing play out all in the faith in Jesus doing what only he could have done in that situation? I just would have loved to have been a part of that. So I read the historical narrative. So I'm excited to teach this message. Let me, let me tell you why. Because this is a subject we rarely teach and talk about in church. And so as a result of that, it's a subject that we struggle with. And because of our silence, it, it's ironic. Because even though we're silent about the issue of doubts, we pretend that people don't have doubts or if they do have doubts, something's wrong with them. And I don't struggle with doubts. So what's you know, what's going on? And so so we're silent about this issue about doubts. But the ironic thing is there is a huge section of Scripture that deals specifically with doubts and struggles. Uh, The book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, many of the Psalms deal with doubt and struggle. And so before we get into the text and look at some of the principles, let me just spend a few minutes kind of laying the foundation. We talk about doubts because not every doubt's the same, and, and but every doubts kind of fall under a general category, but, but they're a little different. And so let me just kind of lay the foundation here in regards to doubts. And so doubts basically fall into one of three categories. Uh, for some of you, you may have struggled or cont- are currently struggling uh, with what we would call intellectual doubts. Sometimes the doubts are spiritual doubts, and sometimes they're circumstantial doubts. And if you've ever struggled with doubt or you're currently struggling with doubt, then it's going to fall under one of those headings. It's the intellectual doubt, it's the spiritual doubt, or it's the circumstantial doubt. So let me just tell you a little bit about those. Uh, Intellectual doubts, we we probably understand those. Uh, Those are most often raised outside uh, the church. Is the Bible really the Word of God? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I remember an interview with Larry King several years ago, and I, I watched the, the clip of it. And they said, if you could interview anyone in human history, who would it be? He said, it'd be Jesus. They said, that's interesting. Well, why would you say that? He said, I would ask him, uh, were you really the son of God? Were you really born of a virgin? Did you really rise from the dead? And he said, the answers to those questions would change all of history and my own personal life. But he couldn't wrangle those intellectual doubts to come to that place. And so he moved forward in his own belief system. So there's intellectual doubts. Uh, Secondly, there are spiritual doubts. Uh, These are the doubts often that we wrestle with sometimes in the church. Uh, Am I really Christian? Have I truly believed? Why is it so hard to pray? Uh, Why do I still feel guilty? Why is it taking me so long to to work through this bitterness and all those kinds of things? And so those would be uh, just spiritual doubts that we have. But the third category is uh, circumstantial doubts. And this is probably the largest category of doubts. Let me just say this. It's often the most difficult to deal with. Let me give you a description of circumstantial doubts. This is all the whys of life. How many of you have ever in your faith journey at a point in time stepped back and said, God, why? Have I done that? I have lots of times. 
This is the wise. Why did my child die instead of being healed? Why did my marriage break up? Why can't I find a spouse? Why did my friend betray me? Where was God when I was being abused? Why did you let that natural disaster happen? All those innocent people. Why? And those are all circumstantial doubts. In my experience, the toughest doubts of all to deal with. And sometimes we just sweep them under the rug and just pretend they're not there. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we even put down those who struggle with these doubts. Or we give them cheap, cliche answers. You just got to have faith. You just got to believe. You just got to do these things. And so oftentimes it doesn't help. It actually makes the problem uh, more difficult. We just kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend that, that we don't have doubts in the church. And if you have doubts, then there must be something wrong with you. So we just don't even talk about that issue. Let me tell you why that's a bad decision. When we refuse specifically to deal with circumstantial doubts, those soon become spiritual doubts. And those spiritual doubts eventually become intellectual doubts. And at that point, people start leaving the church and denouncing the faith. And the scripture calls that apostate. And so it's not helpful. It's not profitable at all to pretend it's, it, we don't struggle with doubts. It's, it's, or just we don't talk about that. Or the, you know, it's to question God. And listen, uh, don't, don't do that to your kids either. Like as your kids are moving through their own faith journey, there are going to be times they ask questions and out of fear sometimes uh, we can scold them and say, how dare you ask that question? I remember about a year ago, we're riding in the car. Uh, my kids, I've been doing uh, pastoring for 13 and a half years. My oldest is 13 years old. There has never been a time in their life where their dad was not, not a pastor. And I remember in the car, we're not talking about anything. And my son is in the back seat, and he's nine or ten maybe at that point in time. And we're just riding, not, not saying a word, just listening to the radio. And uh, he says, Dad, he said, I got a question. I said, yeah, bud. He said, what if our religion's not real? And I thought, where did that come from? And there is a temptation when you're a parent to say, well, how dare you ask? How dare you question God? How dare you know? You've grown up in the church, all those things. I said, you know what? That's a great question. Let's talk about that. You say, well, you know, but you know what we do in the church? We do the same thing. We just sweep under the rug. And we don't talk about that. And if you have doubts and what's wrong with you and your faith is weak and all those kinds of things, and it's not helpful. And if we don't deal with those doubts, circumstantial doubts, they become spiritual doubts and spiritual doubts become intellectual doubts. And intellectual doubts are what cause people to walk away. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage, three principles about dealing with doubts. And then we're going to wrap up the end. I'm going to give you three action steps on how to move past your doubts. Uh, no one goes to the doctor just to have him sit there and go, hey, here's what's wrong. Okay. No, you go to the doctor because you want them to diagnose, but you also want them to treat. So, so we're going to look at doubts and how they happen, where they come from in this passage. And then we're going to go into a, a kind of how do you deal with this? Okay, I get all that says that, but how do I move past that struggle that I'm walking through this morning? So uh, we're going to look at this square head on this morning. We're not going to be silent about an issue that so many people struggle with. So let me give you three principles in this passage uh, related to doubts. And the first one is simply this. Doubts are often preceded. By discouragement. Doubts are often preceded by discouragement. That so many times we come to a place and if it ends up in the place of intellectual doubts and I'm not sure this whole thing is true and I'm not sure the Bible is the word of God and, and I believe that was younger, but maybe it's just what my parents told me I should believe. And so I'm just not even sure anymore what I believe. And before a person gets there, oftentimes, if you could back that train up, you would find out that those intellectual doubts started with a season of discouragement. Remember the progression I just talked about. Circumstantial doubts, if they're not dealt with, become spiritual doubts and spiritual doubts become intellectual doubts. And then people start leaving the church and the faith 
all together. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret of mine this morning. I'm going to a little flaw, if you would, of mine this morning. I am horrible. I mean, horrible about losing things. Like, like I, I, I can I can lose things faster than anyone I know. And my wife, like I'm not good at directions. Tasha has asked me on several occasions. She said, how do you get home from work every day? Like, how, how, do, how do you how, how she said, I think you're a smart guy. And I say, amen. But how do you how are you smart and you can lose anything like instantly and never know where it's at again? It was so bad that in my first church, uh, they had a name for me. It was the absent minded professor. Like, hey, you're a pretty smart guy, but you you can't remember where you put your socks or anything like that. And so I can lose my keys. I can lose my wallet. I can lose my cell phone. And when all those happens, I can lose my mind. And so all that happens in credit. Now, let me tell you this. That has happened so many times I cannot count. Let me tell you what is not helpful in those situations. It's when someone comes along and asks this question. Listen, and in Jesus name, I want to smack him when they do, because here's what they ask. Where's the last place you remember you had them at? Well, as a matter of fact, if I knew the answer to that, they would not be lost, would they? In Jesus name, right? But people still ask that over and over. You know what? I hadn't thought of that question. You're right. I know where they are now. Thank you for that insight. Thank you. Now, when people ask that, it's not real helpful for finding your keys. But when people walk you and ask you that question about if you're struggling with doubts, remembering the place you started being discouraged can be incredibly profitable. And you've come to this season of doubts. And when did you start down? If you can back that up and say, you know what? It all started with this discouraging situation. That discouraging circumstantial doubt began to get into spiritual doubts. And those spiritual doubts end up in intellectual doubts. And so how did I end up here? I remember it all started with a difficult time in my life. And so when you realize that you often put the, put the brakes on your doubt before it spirals out of control, realizing the natural progression that happens as it relates to doubts. Look at verse 22 in this passage. What's he say here? In verse 22, it says, And often he has thrown them both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now, now listen to this. Listen to this. But if you can do anything, remember who he's asking. He's asking Jesus. And he's come to this place recognizing that Jesus is in the area and he approaches him. And here's the reality we know from verse 22. He approaches him not with the full confidence. I've just got to get near him. I've got to touch him. I've got to do, you know, whatever. Listen, he approaches and says, listen, if perhaps you could do anything. And so there is no question there is a measure of doubt within this man. As a matter of fact, his doubt is so strong that Jesus openly rebukes him for it in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here. And so we, we see that play out. So the man is dealing with doubt. It's, it's strong doubt. Jesus rebukes it. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how he gets to the place where he has intellectual doubts. Verse 22, some intellectual doubts. I'm not sure Jesus is who he says he is. I'm not sure Jesus can do what he says he can do. But I want you to see where it all started off in verse 14, 15, and 16. It started off with a discouraging context. Look at verse 14. He came to the disciples. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. 
And so immediately they all saw, they saw Jesus, they ran to him, running him, they greeted him, he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with him? In the original language, it's what are you arguing with him? Now let, let me tell you what's happening here. This guy comes, he, listen, at this point in time, Jesus is mostly hearsay. He is panicked. Put yourself, that's your child. He is panicked. All he's heard about Jesus is hearsay. He runs up and the religious leaders of his culture, the scribes and Pharisees, but this context is just as the scribes, those who spoke with spiritual authority, those who knew the law were disputing and arguing with the disciples. And we say, what were they arguing about? Listen, when you compare scripture with scripture, we know the argument that's taking place. The disciples are proclaiming he's the Messiah. The disciples are proclaiming all the things he can do and the things they've witnessed. And the scribes are sitting back saying, no, 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 he's not the one. He can't do that. It's not him. He's not who you says he is. His dad's Joseph. And so here you walk up and your child in a critical condition. And the people who are religious authorities who know the law in your culture are standing there saying, can't do it. Can't do it. Not who he says he is. Not today. Not here. Can't do it. And so how did he get to the place where he questioned if Jesus could do what he said he could do? Because it all started off, he walked up and he was incredibly discouraged by the fact that the people who knew the law, the people who were spiritual in his circles of influence were saying, it cannot be done. And so discouragement preceded his doubt in verse 22. It happens over and over and over again in our lives. That's exactly the progression. And when I look at this, I can't help but think of in Scripture, the prophet Jeremiah uh, in the Bible suffered so much pain and despair. He, he never doubted if God was real, but he certainly doubted God's sovereignty. He came to a place in his ministry as a prophet. Listen, if you want to understand discouragement, take on the ministry of the prophets. No one liked them. Now, I mean, no one liked them. And their whole job was to go to people and put their finger in people's face as God's mouthpiece and say, listen, repent. You've walked away from the Lord. You need to return. And no one likes to hear that. And so you talk about a discouraging assignment and people's hearts were hard. And they often did repent or they they chased them out of town. They persecuted them, all those kinds of things. It was incredibly discouraging. And so he walked through that discouragement as a part of his ministry as a prophet. But Jeremiah at times doubted God's call, God's uh, sovereignty. All of those things. He, he doubted that he often said God was unfair to him. We read that in Jeremiah chapter 20. There was times when he was speaking just an honest heart. He said, I wish I would have never been born. Chapter 15 tells us that. Chapter 20 tells us that. But when you examine his story in Scripture, the same pattern plays out. Doubts are not the uh, problem. Uh, doubts are the symptom, but they're not the source. And so he began to realize that his life was difficult and it was disappointing And at one point in time, he was telling the people, listen, God is like a a river of water, refreshing. But he got so discouraged in his own ministry. Here's what he said in Jeremiah chapter two. He said, Lord, I think you've changed. You were like a supply of water that became dry. So it stopped. And how did he get to the place where he wondered God's call and he began to doubt God's call in his life? He began to doubt God's sovereignty. He began to doubt that God cares. He got to a place in chapter two where he was so discouraged. He said, God, I think you've changed. You're like water that was flowing. You just stopped. And his disappointment led to discouragement that overtook him in doubts. And so doubts are often preceded by seasons of discouragement and disappointment. And my guess is that many of you can relate to that. Here's the second reality we know about doubts is simply this, is that doubts cannot be fully resolved 
through others. It cannot be fully resolved through us. I just want to address this quickly and then just uh, move on, but I want to skip over it all together. Let, let me just tell you, listen, other people can help move you along when you're struggling with doubts. Other people can speak truth in your life. Other people can encourage you. Other people can come alongside of you and share their story of doubts and how they struggled and how God brought them through. But at the end of the day, by faith is a vertical thing and it can only be resolved completely vertically. As a matter of fact, if you're not careful, if you're looking for other folks to resolve your doubt, what you may find is they actually make it worse by offering some cliche or, or even worse, condemning you. What do you mean you doubt? What's wrong with you? And so doubts cannot fully be resolved through others. But that's exactly what happens in this passage. The first thing he does is go to look at verse 17 and 18 again. And then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who is a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Look, look, listen to this. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And so what happens? He tried to resolve his doubt horizontally. And you know what happened? His doubt didn't didn't go away. It got worse. I mean, you're walking with Jesus. You can't fix this. You can't help me. You can't move me along. Job also found this to be true as well. Remember how helpful Job's friends were? Like, well, if you know the story of Job in Scripture, Job is going through an incredibly difficult season. I mean, his whole life is falling apart. And so his three friends come in. They're going to counsel him. They're going to give a, a word to him. They're going to speak truth in his lives. And the thing they do, they sit back and go, well, Job, you must. What did you do wrong? You've got sin in your life or else this wouldn't be happening. And so they didn't help him with this. They just moved him. Even Job's wife was not any help at all as he struggled with his faith. Job chapter 2, verse 9 says this. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And so someone said, God took away everything in Job's life. Why didn't you take away his wife? Because she was uh, Satan's messenger. Come alongside the one person who's supposed to be there and support him and love him and walk with him and hold his hand to this is you should just curse God and die. That's what you should do. You know, how ultimately, Job settled his doubts. It wasn't horizontally, even though folks can help us. It wasn't horizontally. It was vertically. He took all of that doubt, all that frustration, all that anger, all that disappointment, all that discouragement, and he took it directly to the Father and he was honest with him. And he poured out his heart. And then for like, you know, 10, 15, 20 chapters, you know, he just, uh, God just says, who, who are you? Did you put the stars in place? Did, did you look around? Did you do all this? And he wrestled with God through that and he took his doubts vertically and eventually God resolved those things. It's the same pattern of David in the Psalms. Listen, read the Psalms, and if you ever wonder, can I be so honest with God to tell him I'm disappointed, or I'm discouraged, or I'm struggling with doubts, or any of those things, read the Psalms. And David resolved his doubts, and his, all those things, ultimately resolved those vertically, took him straight to the Father. And so Job and David repeatedly questioned God, but they were not condemned. God is big enough to handle our doubts and our questions. And many people think struggling with God means we lack faith, but it's not true. Struggling with God is a sure sign that we have faith. So oftentimes our doubts cannot be resolved fully, horizontally. We've got to take them straight to the Father and wrestle through those in those times. Let me give you the third truth about doubts in this passage is this. We can be honest about doubts without surrendering to them. We can be honest with, about doubts without surrendering to them. 
You know why I was excited to preach this message this morning? It's because it's a subject that I want to provide encouragement on with lots of folks who are struggling with doubt by addressing it openly and honestly. And I think sometimes the reason we're afraid to be honest about this issue of doubts in the church and struggling and seasons of doubts and different types of doubts is we're afraid if we're honest and we acknowledge it, we're almost giving permission that it can overtake someone's life and lead them down that path. But we can be honest about doubts without surrendering to them. Almost every Christian I know has struggled with doubts at some point in time. Maybe it's intellectual doubts. That's a part of my own story. I didn't grow up in church. And so when I came to Christ, I was 13 years old and I kind of walked with the Lord for a little bit. And then I you know, didn't walk with the Lord. And, and when I came back, I was, it was in college. And I just got to the place where I just said, you know what? I'm not totally sure this is true. And I wrestled with that. And I came to a place and I studied the resurrection and all the historical evidence. And I came to a place that says, you know what? I believe this. The evidence is weighted on the side of the resurrection. And because I believe it is a rational faith and it's true, I'm going to pour my whole life into it. God, I'll pour my whole life into it. Just don't make me a preacher. Amen? And so that's a part of my story. I wrestled with doubt. God began to deal with my heart. And here's what I want you to know about something. I want you to listen closely. Faith requires doubt in order to be faith. Don't you understand that? Faith requires doubt in order to be faith in the first place. There's always a measure of doubt in something that cannot be seen. So by its very nature, faith has to have doubt to even exist. Faith cannot be exercised from a place of absolutely no doubt. Faith has to have doubt to exist. You should be comforted by that. You should be comforted by that. You can be honest about your doubts without surrendering to them. Look at verse 24. That's exactly what this guy does. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He was honest about his doubts. He was honest, but he never surrendered to them. How do I know that? Verse 25 and 26. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying that deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed, came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And so this guy was honest about his doubts, but he never surrendered to him. He said, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. So let's get really practical. How do you do that? How are you honest about your doubts without surrendering to them? How are you honest about the fact? How how can you come to a place and say, you know what? I have had spiritual doubts. I have had circumstantial doubts. I have had intellectual doubts. I am walking through one of those seasons right now. How can you be honest about your doubts without surrendering to them? And I think one of the reasons we don't talk about it is because we're afraid if we're honest about it, then we'll surrender to it. And so how do we take this as preacher talk and make this into real practical? This is what it looks like. So I'm so glad you asked that question. Okay, because I'm going to wrap up this morning with three practical steps to overcoming doubt. Here are three, three things. If you're struggling with doubt, maybe, you know, someone who has struggled with doubt. Listen, I know stories of people who were pursuing ministry and they came to the place where a crisis in their life and that disappointment led to discouragement. That discouragement led to intellectual doubts. And they've now denounced the faith. And so how do you deal with these doubts in a practical way? I want to give you three action steps. Very, very practical. Here's the first one. Recognize that doubting is normal. 
It's normal. You see, my experience is this. What happens when someone starts struggling with some type of doubt? It may not be intellectual doubts. It may just be, uh, you know, spiritual doubts or circumstantial doubts or whatever. They just come, they, they don't get any help. You know why? Because they're afraid to even acknowledge the fact they're struggling with doubt. And we don't talk about it in the church. And so it doesn't help the situation. So they come to the place because we never talk about it. So they come to the place in their own minds where they think this is shameful. We don't talk about this because it's shameful. And so I'm not even comfortable sharing with someone that I'm struggling in a season of doubt in my life, whatever type of doubt that it is. And so the first place is you come and recognize that doubt is a normal part of walking out your faith. Faith can't even exist apart from doubt. You say, is it, listen, give me some scripture for that. Let me give you two examples. One Old Testament, one new. Abraham, when he met God, God informed him, he said, hey, you're going to have a son from a mighty nation. And so God said, listen, I'm going to call you to a place and I want you to go and pursue the promise. I want you to do all those things. But along the journey, Abraham's life became in danger and God had made him this promise and said, listen, I'm going to bless you and, and all the people that descend from you. I'm going to give you a son and through him, you know, on Messiah and all those things. But when Abraham got to a place where his life was in danger along that journey, you know what he did? He doubted God's sovereignty. He doubted God's promise and God's provision. And so he took matters into his own hands because of his doubts. And he lied to protect himself. Fast forward eight chapters. That was in Genesis chapter 12. Fast forward eight chapters. Genesis chapter 20. Uh, Sarah, his wife, uh, caught the eye of Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh took her, took her into his harem. And once again, Abraham said, you know what? Let's just lie. Yes, I know that God has promised and God's made provision and God's protected, but but I'm not sure. I'm doubting all those things right now in the heat of the moment. And so let's just lie. Chapter 20. However, if you read the rest of the story, Abraham goes on to be a man of great faith. Matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, we could argue that he was the MVP of God's hall of faith. Let me give you a second example in the New Testament. John the Baptist. I mean, this is Jesus' cousin. Jesus' own cousin, both had born in miraculous circumstances. John would baptize Jesus. He would see the Spirit of God descending like a dove. But John's ministry, as that of a prophet, was incredibly difficult. So he walks through a hard time. He's in prison. His life is disappointing. It's not turning out how we thought it was going to turn out. Matter of fact, at that point, it was incredibly painful. But this was Jesus' cousin. This is the guy that baptized Jesus. Surely he never struggled with doubt, but his life got so disappointing and so discouraging that it led him to a place of doubt. And so he sent some of his disciples and he said, listen, I want you to go find Jesus. And here's what I want you to ask him. I want you to ask him, are you really the Messiah? What? John, how could you ask that? You know, if I were Jesus... I would send him back and say, hey, take this note back. And I would just write on there, are you serious, loser? I don't know if I'd say that or not. I don't think Jesus would. By the way, I just want to, I think Jesus would have said loser. Maybe I would have. Do you see the pattern, though, in John's life? Disappointment, discouragement, doubt. And so Jesus obviously knew by the question that John was struggling with doubt. And so what Jesus, I mean, Jesus scolded him. What's wrong with you? You're my cousin. You should know better. Here's what Jesus said in response to John's doubts. Would you go in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? Would you go out to see a man dressed in fancy clothes? Look, those who wear fancy clothes are the homes of kings. Would you go out to see a prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Among those born of a woman, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Jesus knew that John was struggling with doubts. And instead of rebuking him, he provides evidence. He encouraged him. He complimented him and saying, listen, there's none born of those born of a woman. There is none greater than John the Baptist. And he said that right after John's season of doubting. And so what does that mean to you and I? Listen, if Abraham and John the Baptist can experience doubt while enjoying God's favor and not God's condemnation, then it appears God understands that and is patient with us as we walk through seasons of doubt. Why? Because it's normal. Jesus' own half-brother didn't believe who he was, who he said he was, until he saw him resurrected. Let me give you a second action step. First one is just, just realize doubting is normal. It's a part of working out your faith. Here's the second action step is this. Recognize that good evidence supports the truth of Christianity. Recognize that, listen, this is not a leap in the dark. But this is not just some pie in the sky and, and it just it makes me feel better to believe this or, or I just want to go to a better place when I die and I think this is the ticket there. Though, listen, there was good historical circumstantial evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you're wrestling with doubts and particularly intellectual doubts, I would encourage you to do what I did. I would encourage you to walk through all the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that is the central issue in Christianity. There's been a lot of debates. There was a recent debate here with Ken Ham and Bill Nye, and I watched that and I enjoyed it and read a lot of those blogs and those follow-up things. Can I, can I just tell you this? As important as an issue they were dealing with, that is not the central issue in Christianity. Of all the things that we often argue about, the timing of the second coming, eternal security, not eternal security, translation issues, music, just all those kinds of things. Listen, those are all secondary issues. Why do I say that? Because Paul said this, if Jesus be not raised, then your faith is in vain. The whole central issue is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to study that out and look at all the historical evidence and you will find that Jesus' resurrection is unparalleled in terms of strong evidence for confirming confirming. Worldview. And we'll set it up there. Third, here's the last one. Recognize that faith ultimately is a commitment, not a feeling. Ultimately, faith is a commitment and not a feeling. Listen, that's the issue in Mark chapter 9. How'd this guy feel? Anxious. How do I know that? Because when he gets to speak to Jesus, first thing he says, oh, if you could... If, if, you're, if you're able to, I would really appreciate it. Peter walked on water and began sinking when he became frightened by the waves and he doubted. Yet it was Peter who got out of the boat while the others watched from inside. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is a commitment. And being a Christ follower means that, yes, there are times I feel discouraged. Yes, there are times I feel disappointed. But at the end of the day, I, by faith, choose to walk forward in what God has revealed His will and His principles in the Scriptures. Faith is a commitment, not just a feeling. And there will be times where the feeling is not there. But at the end of the day, faith is a commitment, not a feeling. I think above the front door of every church... We should nail up a two-word sign that says this. Doubters, welcome. Doubters, welcome. 
you're here this morning and your favorite Bible character is Doubting Thomas, then I've got some good news for you. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. It's better to be late to the party than to never show up. And though millions have come, there's still room for one. And Doubting Thomas, there's room at the cross for you. Let me invite you to bow your heads if you would this morning.